Hidden Gems, Episode 48, Stefan Dora, Part 2. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And this is Bill. Thanks for listening to our show. Welcome back, Bill. Hey, thank you, Jason. I, I want to hear all about the adventures. <laughs> I wasn't on the last episode, so I got to listen in to your adventures remotely via the episode like a listener. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Remote so. from the 30-foot swells. You're right, on, <laughs> on 56 latitude of the Antarctic Circle. Yeah, it was funny because we played with the idea of trying to do a live back and forth, and that wasn't going to work out because they use satellite internet there, and you just can't get good throughput. But you could do WhatsApp and record, so yes, yeah, so I did, yeah, I did send that back. I laughed numerous times listening to that message from you talking about those 30 foot swells <laughs> oh just God. imagine you laying on your back on mm. this bed trying not to throw yeah. up all over yourself did, did you have to edit out the sounds of bill <laughs> bombing over the side of the ship <laughs> you know if you guys don't know drake's passage is the beast or, or it can be absolutely can be in that whole exchange cameron comes back and says hey bill i'm not sure we can use this recording how about you write down <laughs> what your review is and send it back i'm laying on my back in the bed and saying there is no writing going on here cameron <laughs> well i know it's a huge trip bill but just give us some highlights if it's even possible it's, it's polar plunge the polar plunge <laughs> is pretty much a highlight the, the the water was actually one degree below freezing when we all jumped in and oh it was, my that, word that's it, insane it was absolutely cold but the bay that we were in that was a bay that we went kayaking on and maybe i'll can i post these on discord some pictures on discord yeah yeah okay yeah. I'll, I'll put mm-hmm. a couple of pictures up in discord this bay was absolutely beautiful you were surrounded by glaciers you know 270 degrees and the peaks were coming in and out of the mist that was going over them and it was just breathtaking well we saw all 270 degrees <laughs> with all of your 360 <laughs> photos <laughs> yeah. that's good i wanted to make you feel like you were there but yeah that was, that was an awesome day the penguins of course are just hysterical oh gosh um, i want to hear about this the, the penguins what was funny is i, I don't know if you've been the Caribbean where you're riding in the ship and you'll see the flying fish take off and, and flit in front of the ship. You'll ride along and you'll see the penguins porpoising out of the water alongside of the ship. Just, no way. Just like hundreds of them. Oh, that's cool. That, yeah, that was that was absolutely cool. Did you have to dodge any penguin droppings? <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the biggest surprises, I guess, to me. And they called it out that you're going to get hit by the smell before you're hit by anything else. But <laughs> the way it worked is we had different groups on this it was a national geographic explorer was the ship that i'm on and they have zodiacs that are on the bottom level so we would all go down to the mudroom and change into our parkas and our rubber pants and rubber boots and get in the zodiacs and go in the shore and basically we'd step out in the water and oftentimes you know it's a foot of water that we're stepping into but the first place we went was a gentoo penguin colony and it smelled bad. <laughs> it smelled absolutely horrible. But it was also a colony where they were nesting. And so there were a bunch of baby penguins there that are super, super cute. They oh, have man. this like light gray, steel blue fur that hasn't turned into the black fur that's mm-hmm. actually waterproof. I and mean, they can't go in the water when huh. they're still at that phase. They have to be fed by the parents. So the parents will go out 
get some food, come back, and of course they'll do the hurling feeding thing, which is kind of funny to watch. But the other thing that is a hysterical <laughs> dynamic is when the parent will, will come back, they'll poke the kids and make them chase them before they feed them to get their muscles built up. <laughs> so it's no like, way. <laughs> okay, kids, no more Nintendo. How can I implement this in my own life? <laughs> you want lunch? Go mow the lawn. <laughs> exactly. So it was hysterical to see these kids chasing after the parents and and I think we could all learn something from this. I'm learning something <laughs> yeah, here from penguins. Penguins are pretty awkward when they're on land. They're graceful as can be when they're in the water, but it was hysterical to see them all waddling after each other. <laughs> and really, a lot of the kids looked bigger than the parents at this point, just because I guess the parents were giving them all the food. But anyway, it, it was that in was regurgitory fashion. Right. <laughs> One other thing that's kind of hidden gems related. I think last time you talked about the game that I left on board in the mm-hmm. board game cabinets. So if you ever go on a National Geographic, the explore and it goes all over it has a trip to galapagos it also has one to alaska so you know it could be anywhere on the inside cover i put everybody in hidden jim's name on the inside sign it and take yeah, a picture write your name in it yeah, yeah. exactly and send it yeah. back that'd be awesome the other thing i did port lockroy which is the post office in antarctica i went there and there's four women that have been there all summer and i left them a game of Hanabi. Ah, yeah, you showed me this picture. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. I sent him a picture, or I sent him an email back to say, hey, send me a picture of you guys playing it. And she did. She sent me back this really nice letter. Nice. So they actually played it. They weren't just being nice. No, they weren't. (laughs) I'll I'll read it to you real quick. Hi, Bill. I'm Natalie. I'm the lady you met at Point Lockroy and gave gave the Hanabi game to. Thank you again, and I hope that you enjoyed the rest of your Antarctic adventure. I'm currently enjoying a barbecue on board a ship with a Wi-Fi, so I thought I'd drop you an email. We found some time last night to play the game, and it took us a little while to figure it out, but it was enjoyed by the four of us, and we will leave it in the base in the fun cupboard to be enjoyed by future teams. Anyway, I just thought that was Super cool. Very cool. And I think, I guess that's You brought back a game from Antarctica, too, right? I did bring back a game to give to Chris. I've forgotten (laughs) what it's called, the Gentoo. I've got it right over here. Oh, yeah. It's called Gentoo Dominoes. Maybe a future hidden gem. Ages three and up. I figured, I figured it might be a challenge for Chris, but <laughs> it might be. I mean, it looks kind of like King Domino, which, you know, I would classify as ages three and up, too. So, you yeah, that oh, works. No, I'm excited to, to try it out. Actually, it's neat. I'm sure, it has some of that masochistic tension that you're always looking for. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does. Oh, that's so cool, Bill. I got to tell you, you have reached mythical status amongst oh. our listeners. I just have to say this because I told him I'd give him a shout out. I actually got an Instagram message. Uh huh. From one of our listeners a couple of days ago, Angel in Mexico. Oh, wow. And you are now, according to him, his favorite Hidden Gems team member because oh. you went to Antarctica. <laughs> oh, oh, man. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's my favorite listener now, too. So <laughs> the, the legend grows. I mean, oh, he just thinks awesome. you're so cool now because you went to Antarctica. So yeah. I just got a kick out of that. All right. Well, I'm not going next because I don't want to follow that. <laughs> so. Yeah. How do you follow Jason, that? beat that. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to, I don't think. Uh, let's see. I did watch a very interesting movie, which, I mean, it's actually fairly well-known. Well, maybe well-known. I don't know. It's nominated for Best Picture right now. So I know, Chris, you watched it recently. So I feel like we have to talk about this. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Have you heard about this, Bill? Everything, everywhere, all at once. I have heard about it. I've heard heard weird things about it. Oh, my. It's probably the weirdest movie I have ever watched in my life. (laughs) Oh, yeah? But it's nominated for Best Picture. And so uh, I had seen... Which is mind-blowing. Yeah, I had seen a preview for it. And I was like, oh, man, alternate dimensions, weird sci-fi stuff going on. Nominated for Best Picture. I have to check this out. So 
I watched it with my wife, actually. <laughs> and we started it late at night, so we only made it through the first half. And if you watch this movie, you have to know that the first half of the movie, you will have no idea what is going on. No, first five, six of the movie. <laughs> maybe not the whole thing, to be quite honest. Well, yeah, maybe. But basically, I don't want to give away plot points to the movie in case people want to go see it. It's... Uh, gosh, where do you I mean, start? you got to talk a little bit about it. It's an immigrant family from Korea, and they own a laundromat. Yep. And are having irs tax issues (laughs) right and then there's issues between the mother and the daughter and Mm -hmm. the mother and the husband yep and the mother and her father so it's kind of like a family dynamic thing going on that's how it starts (laughs) and then it kind of goes into this weird like i i feel like i'm giving away a lot no no just go for it but it's fine all of a sudden you get you fall into this world where there are multiple multiple dimensions and it becomes very like matrix ish almost Mm -hmm. in a way which is going to sound super weird and not make any sense to, to anybody. But if you watch through it, it starts to make sense. You start slowly, <laughs> very, very slowly, because it keeps introducing all these new random weird concepts. But they somehow mysteriously all fit together by the time you get to the end. So, like I said, I was watching this with my wife. We watched the first half and she was like, I'm not watching the rest of this. Because <laughs> we stopped it for the night and we were like going to come back to it the next night. And she was like, that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I'm not watching the rest of it. So I was like, well, I have to finish it now. So I watched the second half and then I went back to her. I was like, you need to watch the second half with me. Uh, and she watched it and she liked it. I will say that the way that it wraps up and the way that kind of ties in all the family dynamic stuff, I really enjoyed that part of it. I mm. thought they did a good job of leveraging the weirdness to somehow tie it in it was just super creative in in my opinion but yeah you just gotta know if you watch it that it's still up there as the bizarrest thing i've ever watched yeah i think we can let on maybe slightly more we can cut this if we have to but i I, I feel the need to give a little bit more so basically what's happening here is the infinite versions of yourself that exist in the multiverse um yes yeah uh (laughs) They are figuring out how to plug into those versions of themselves, basically. Which allows you to kind of like download skills and things. And kind of like the Matrix, from, right? Yeah, oh, from God. your other alternate selves. So, in oh, another version of yourself, you. you might be really good at a certain thing that might help you in your current time, although you yourself might suck at that thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're entering numerous versions of themselves. <laughs> They can change what they're holding in their hand. Like they might need a sword, but maybe they're holding who knows what, a sausage. Okay. But in the infinite versions of yourself, somewhere out there, a you is holding a sword. And so she finds a way to find herself to find this useful thing, but you might end up holding who knows what. I'm so tempted to say some things, but I don't want to lose our I don't want to lose our family rating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's some weird stuff in this movie. This movie is crazy. It is insane. I'm just going to say I didn't like the movie, but I'm glad I watched it just to say that I have. But it is insanity from beginning to end. That's really the best way I can explain it. Okay. I'm in. Are you intrigued, Bill? I'm absolutely intrigued. (laughs) What's streaming service? Um, Oh, uh, Hulu. Oh, you watched it on Hulu? Yeah. I think I had to sign up for a seven-day trial of Paramount Plus or something like that. Hmm. And then I canceled it after that. Oh, good one, Jason. So anyway, if the weirdest movie you've ever seen with multiple dimensions sounds interesting to you, check it out. I will say I've seen a lot of weird movies, and I've read a lot of weird things. 
this is for sure the weirdest thing I've ever watched. One hundred percent. I am yeah. sure of that. I cannot think of anything that even approaches it. It's insanity. That's, it says a lot coming from Chris. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. Best picture nominee. <laughs> Crazy. Okay. Well, how do I beat that? You guys have some good things, but I think I've got a good thing. I've got something I'm excited to talk about today. So I started a new book, graphic novel, <laughs> which actually re- led to me reading a book. I'm getting to that, but I actually have it right here in the center of the table. It's called The History of Science Fiction, a graphic novel adventure. So it's published by Humanoids. And basically what this book is, is I hesitate to call it a textbook because it's not a graphic novel, but it is a history of science fiction. So what this author attempts to do is to cover the span of science fiction as he understands it from its origins to present day. Wow. It's over 200 pages. That's an undertaking. And the way that it's written, the protagonists are Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet. And then Jenkins the Robot. Do you know who Jenkins the Robot is? I don't. See, I had to look this one up too. This shows you how little I know about science fiction apparently. But it's from a story called City by Clifford Simak. Don't know it. Nope. Okay. So we have a lot to learn. But basically they're trying to discover the origins of science fiction And they do this through a graphic novel format. So I am not reading this book cover to cover. What I've decided that I'm going to do is I'm going to use it as a guidebook. So I'll be reading this book for probably many years. But basically what I'm going to do is every time I reach something that I don't know what it is, like it references a book, I'm going to read the book or a movie that I haven't seen. And I'm just going to go through. So the first one that I stopped on was like page 12. (laughs) I didn't get very far. Because to be honest, I can always consider myself more of a fantasy type of guy. I enjoy science fiction, but I'm not a science fiction buff for sure. Yeah. So the first one that I landed on was a book by Arthur C. Clarke. Oh yeah. Called The Fountains of Paradise. Uh Have you read this? No, no, no. I've heard of it. I have read some Arthur C. Clarke. Okay. All right. What have you read of Arthur C. Clarke? I can't. I can't remember. I have to look sometime but yeah. yeah i know this is like a titan in science fiction but i was not familiar with his works apparently he wrote a short story called the sentinel which was the inspiration for 2001 a space odyssey and the fountains of paradise is one of his more well-known books basically to make a long story short it's a story about man's attempt to develop a space elevator so the story hmm. takes place about 100 years from now from present day, and it centers on a character by the name of Vannevar Morgan, who's an engineer, and he's trying to build the first space elevator. Because at this time, space travel is more of a reality. There are lots of space stations, and the toil that spaceship rocket travel exerts on the environment, not to mention the cost, is just too much. So they decide they're going to make a space elevator to put people into orbit to get on these space stations. So basically, the story revolves around the struggles of building a space elevator. And I, I know, I know, I know that sounds bad. I thought the same thing. I thought, am I really going to read this? This sounds crappy. It is a great story. It really is things that he weaves into the plot in the first half of the book that seem insignificant or irrelevant all comes to this culmination in like the last, I'd say quarter of the book that leads to a really satisfying ending. 
Not to mention, mm-hmm. and you should know this going in if you're going to read it, it jumps back and forth in time. So the reason the book is called The Fountains of Paradise is it also jumps backwards several hundred years to a king called Kalidasa, who's the king of Taparabani, which is supposed to be modern-day Sri Lanka, which is where they're trying to build the space elevator. And he tries to build these fountains, which he's successful at, kind of creating this heaven-on-earth garden. And so there are a lot of parallels between what Vannevar Morgan is trying to do in building the space elevator and what Kalidasa was trying to do in making these fountains of paradise. And then it also skips several hundred years in the future where we've made contact with intelligent life on something called Star Glider and how that ties in with our building of the space elevator. So... I tried to make that sound as interesting as possible. <laughs> no. But I will tell you, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I'm, I'm looking at it sitting here, and the foreword is by Ted Chang. I was just telling Bill, I just read a book by Ted Chang called Exhalation. Okay. Which is a collection of short stories, and I really enjoyed it. It explores artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and the nature of the universe and what we can actually know about how Our brain comprehends different things, but it's told through this collection of short stories. So I won't go into the details of of any of those, but really enjoyed it. So when I saw his name on the front, I was like, that that definitely sounds interesting. Dude, that's awesome. I'm just entering into some AI stuff right now with my reading. I'm reading The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one, Bill. I have, absolutely. Have you read that one? No, I have not, but I've Maybe, and I've just forgotten, but yes, I certainly know the title. And then after that, I'm going into the Foundation series, which... I've never read. I know that's crazy to some, like iRobot and all that. But um, yeah, super excited about this. I'll share as I go along and let you know how it's going. But it's going to be a long journey, but that's what I'm doing right now. So That's cool. Well, since you said it, I'm reading The Metaverse by Matthew Ball, and I'm almost finished with that, which is kind of cool. When is it going to arrive? What's it look like? How would you really define it? And it's better than it sounds, but (laughs) I won't go into it either. Better or worse than Ready Player One? (laughs) It's not fiction at all, but uh, so so probably worse. <laughs> I, I loved Ready Player One. Ready Player Two. Uh, Is the metaverse like alternate reality cyber world stuff? Like Ready Player One? Is that why you said that? I, yeah. Forgive me for my ignorance. I'm yes. Not confuse multiverse with metaverse. So part of it is he spends like a chapter defining it, but, but part of it is talking about payment rails and things like that and how the metaverse is going to be something that lives digitally that's out there that creates worlds where things flow very freely and easily between corporate entities it's hard to explain this but like if you're playing call of duty and fortnite together right and you get like a machine gun in call of duty right now you can't use it in Fortnite, or you can't cross over or something like that they're saying the metaverse will eventually evolve so that things will pass back and forth between those things easily digital assets digital assets and things like that maybe even using nfts it's fascinating yeah love it boy we are nerding out tonight guys (laughs) well and what's funny we should probably move on (laughs) but good discussion yeah we don't have much more to talk about yeah Cocktail we, time. We, yeah, we have a cocktail. So what's the cocktail? All right. It tastes very uh, pineapple-y. It is very pineapple-y. So this is a punch. So okay. light on the alcohol. This is one you can make for a large party. So in honor of one of our reviews tonight, mm-hmm. Esselsbrücke, which means donkey bridge, apparently in German, I made donkey punch for us tonight. So donkey punch is one ounce of rum. That's it. Three ounces of orange juice. One ounce pineapple juice, 
and a dash of grenadine, shake with ice, and then top with ginger ale. Donkey punch. like it. You could drink this all night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite tasty. It is very it's good. It's very yeah. sweet. It is. Tasty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's our drink tonight. I'm all phlegmy from this orange juice. Okay. Um, as mentioned, we're talking about Steph and Dora games. This is part two. Second time we've covered Dora on this podcast. And as it just so turns out, Bill, you were on that episode as well. Was it? Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that was when we reviewed Medina. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Hellas. Fantastic. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then Tonga Bonga. Fantastic. Trash. <laughs> <laughs> But that was the infamous episode where I gave two games of six in one episode, which I've never been able to live down since that happened. Love some Dora. Think he's a great designer. Will I give any sixes tonight? Because we'll have to find out. Drum roll. That's right. But yeah, nothing really designer-wise. If you want to hear Dora's bio, feel free to check out the first time we reviewed his games. We talk about them there, but I think since we've already done that, we'll just go ahead and get into the reviews. Yeah? Let's do it. All right. How do you remember a dozen different terms? Very simple, with help of little stories. In this funny and entertaining game, you can tell stories to your heart's content. The 180 funny tiles invite you to tell a story. The more memorable and sometimes strange the stories are, the easier it is for the other players to remember the terms that they contain. Sometimes even weeks after the game. If you build the best mnemonic for your teammates and also listen carefully yourself, you will end up way ahead on the mnemonic. A fascinating game with a good mood guarantee. What does it mean to end up way ahead on a mnemonic? <laughs> that was your German translation. Yeah. I no I'm idea. not sure Google Translate worked out so well on yeah, that one. Some of these translations are suspect. All right. Esselsbrücke, which in German means donkey bridge. Published in 2011 by Schmidt Spiele. And Mandu Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 4,411. Designer, obviously, Stefan Dora, but this was a co-design with Ralph Zerlinda, who is known for other designs such as Finca, Pergamon, Animals on Board, and Milestones. A couple of those are co-designs with Stefan Dora, actually, so they hmm. must work together quite a bit. All right, brief rule summary for Esselsbrücke. So as I mentioned, Esselsbrücke means donkey bridge in German. And as it is used over there, what that means, because I had to look this up, I did not know. A donkey bridge is any mnemonic device or phrase that is used to remember facts or information. So in donkey bridge, the players are creating mnemonic devices to help their opponents remember key pieces of information, while at the same time trying to remember their opponent's mnemonic devices in order to score points. Donkey Bridge takes more, place... Or more like try to not lose points. <laughs> try to have positive points. <laughs> Donkey Bridge takes place over seven rounds of play. In the first two rounds, the players will take three tiles each round, and one at a time they will attempt to link those tiles together through the use of a mnemonic device. So these tiles, there are 180 of them, and what they are is they have a word on them, and then they have a picture basically depicting something and most most of them not all of them but most of them are pretty simple it'd be like 
a piece of cheese or a knife or a gnome or did you say this this game is only in german right by the way so this you don't there's no english words in this that is true so this game is playable if you're english speaking you may not use the tile the way the german language intends for you to like i'm pretty sure we played one game and jason was calling a jacket a straight jacket but and it wasn't a straight jacket but it wasn't it looked like it I think it was just a sweater, man. Yeah, puffy jacket. (laughs) But yeah, it still works. You just have to agree amongst yourself what the tile means. There are some tiles that are a little hard to figure out. For sure. There's like employee of the month, which (laughs) I only know because I translated it. A stool that you can apparently strap around your buttocks? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Might be a cultural thing. I just don't understand. All right. Anyway, so you're getting these three tiles in the first two rounds. And you're trying to come up with a story or a phrase or some sort of clever thing to link those tiles together so that your opponents can recall them. Okay? Give us an example, Chris. (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, After each story is told, the players will then flip the tiles face down and place them in a pile. Beginning with the third round, the players will now draw four tiles and will again create a mnemonic device. However... After telling their story, the active player will then take the face-down tiles from the first story, so the ones they told in round one, and randomly give one tile face-down to each opposing player. The opposing players will then look at their one tile and try to recall, by way of remembering via the mnemonic device, what is on the other tiles moving in a clockwise direction from the active player. Just so this is hitting home, there have been nine stories that have been told now between... (laughs) at least... At least well, if in a four-player game, yeah, four you play up to game. six, which yeah, it would yeah. be madness. So it's, yeah, it, it is madness with, with four. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> if the opposing player can recollect one of the tiles, the player that is holding that tile gives it to the guesser for them to place in a points pile, and this tile counts as one positive point towards that player's final score. It is then the next player in clockwise direction's turn to guess. If a player can't remember a tile, they're out for that round, and they must lose a certain number of tiles for that given round. So I won't go into extreme detail here, but you should note that as the game progresses and you get into deeper rounds, the penalty for losing tiles becomes more and more aggressive. So in the first round, you'll lose a single tile, whereas in the fourth round, if you miss and can't recollect a tile from a story, you'll lose five tiles. And in the final round, you can lose seven tiles in one wrong guess. Players will continue guessing until either all of the tiles are guessed or all of the players have answered incorrectly. So why as a storyteller do you want to tell a memorable story? Because every time your opponents guess a tile, they get a point. Why are you wanting to help your opponents? Well, if your opponents are able to recollect all of the tiles in your story without anyone, including Bill, making a mistake, the storyteller gets to place a blocker tile in their points pile. This is nice for two reasons. One, it's a point because it goes in your points pile, but it also serves as a blocker if you ever have to discard. So if you have to discard five tiles and you start discarding and you hit that blocker tile, you stop prematurely and you don't have to discard the rest. Okay. But you do discard the blocker tile. So if you miss again after that, you're, it keeps you're going, going down. down. Yep. All right. Almost there. In the fourth round, the players again draw four tiles, creating mnemonic devices, and then recollect the tiles from round two. In the fifth round, the players draw five tiles, tell their stories, and then recollect the tiles from round three. And finally, in round six and seven, the players just recollect the tiles from rounds four and five, respectively. 
No additional tiles are drawn and no mnemonic devices are generated in these rounds. At the end of the seventh round, the players will then add up the number of tiles present in their points pile, if any. And the <laughs> no. player with the highest number of tiles wins the game. That's generally how you play Essels Bruca. Okay. So if it didn't come across from the rules explanation, <laughs> and I hope that it did, this is very much a memory game. Okay. And it will challenge you in that regard. You are constantly trying to recollect information and tiles that you've seen while at the same time coming up with stories and trying to process all of this information. However, BGG also has this listed as a party game in its mm-hmm. database. Right. Okay. So I would ask you, do you feel like this is a party game? Because we usually think of party games as being more lighthearted and not quite as intense. What do you think? Is this a game that you feel like you could take to your family and it go over well? What do you think about that? So I'd be really curious to hear what you guys have to say about this. I actually had the opportunity to play this as a family game just the other night. So we had just played it the night before on Thursday, preparing for the podcast. I knew that my mother-in-law, her birthday was recently, and what she wanted to do for her birthday was just have my wife and her sisters all over to the house and do game night, which we've never done before. And so I was like, ah, this game's fun. We can try this out. (laughs) So I took like just one light games. But I took this along too because I was like, we had fun playing it. So Mm -hmm. this could go over. So we tried it and we did not play it at six players. Okay. Uh, So we played it still at four and we did teams. That was a good idea. It was pretty much by couple. And I would say it it went decently well. Now, having played with Bill and (laughs) with a few folks of the... Older age group wow. persuasion. Oh, man. Wow. Are we going to have to cut this out? <laughs> I don't know. I hope not. But I know, Bill, you were complaining about the memory aspect of it. What? Uh-huh. I? I don't recall. <laughs> Do you remember that, no, Bill? <laughs> Tell me, Jason. What did they say? I don't know. Do you remember? I don't. <laughs> Tell me a story about it. So my mother-in-law, I, she was pretty much just like, yeah, I don't remember. (laughs) But she's also kind of of the personality where she's not going to get super into this type of thing anyway. Mm -hmm. But we laughed a lot, and we had a lot of fun playing it. It was fascinating playing this with different generations, like my mother-in-law, but also our kids joined in. They weren't supposed to, but they ended up playing with us. Sure, yeah. And they were destroying all of us. Really? Avery was on my team, my daughter. And by the middle of the game, I was like, yeah, I don't remember any of this stuff anymore. Avery, you remember. <laughs> and wow. she got a ton of it. Even Jude was able to remember a couple of them. And they were having a ton of fun making up the stories and just being silly. Mm-hmm. For playing it with a bunch of people who don't play games regularly, including my wife, who is very suspicious of any game that I try to get our families <laughs> to play. I think they enjoyed it for the most part. That's awesome. I suspect if I took this to my beach week, my nieces and nephews, who's now like late 20s, early 30s, I think they'd have a blast drinking and playing this game, and mm-hmm. and I don't think they would take it seriously, and I think they would come up with funny stories, and I would, again, be in last place because they would remember <laughs> everything. But to me, this comes across as a party game. It's funny. I think the first night we played this, we kind of, I mean, this is horrible, came at it a little bit like reviewers. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. We're going to win it. We're going to do whatever. Right. And we're trying to think of a way to come up with succinct stories. And that's really not the way you have to approach this. Mm -hmm. You've got to approach it like, I'm just going to wing it, have fun. I think the more fun you have with a story, the more likely you're going to win, probably. Absolutely. It's a pretty funny game. 
Yeah, this is a tough question because in some ways I do think this game does push the limits of a party game. And the only reason I say that is for reasons y'all have already alluded to a little bit already. To do well in this game, at least in my experience, you have to think pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It is hard to remember these things sometimes, regardless of the stories. I mean, you're sitting there really thinking hard, harder than you normally would for a party game. I always think right. of it as more light. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. But I do feel like that that difficulty of trying to recall the stories from a party game standpoint is absolutely offset by the fact that you're telling these ridiculous mnemonic devices. And I honestly can't remember a game where we laughed as much as we have in this one in a long time. There's also a different type of thinking too, right? You're thinking hard, but you're just trying to remember, right? You're not trying to think through nuanced, strategic, tactical decisions of some complex auction mechanism, right? (laughs) You're thinking through like, can I remember what the story was? And you feel like you should because you'll look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, the French fries. What was the French fry story about? And you feel like you should remember, but you just can't sometimes. Oh yeah. Truly, there was some level of humiliation that I was going through because you guys were remembering way more than I was and nobody was getting a stop card because I wasn't remembering anything. (laughs) But yeah, there's pressure to it as well. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that too because in our first game, nobody was getting stop cards. That's true. And I think that we learned as we played this game for the better. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time we played it, we were just taking our tiles and coming up with this very bare bones connection between the tiles. Mm-hmm. And then we succinct. started to figure out the crazier that I get with this story and the more wild it is, even though it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, we should all share a story. But for one, I had a cow udder mm-hmm. and I had a snake shoot out of a cow's udder chased by a gnome with a knife okay <laughs> that was where my tiles how do you link those together and i came up with that ridiculous story and everybody remembered it because mm-hmm. it was ridiculous right. right but it was hilarious when we told it right yeah. yeah you start off being like the boy found a cake and then he climbed up a ladder right <laughs> and, but nobody then you're remembers like, that yeah and then you're like okay well i have to embellish this and make it more interesting <laughs> right which is funny because, like, I'm remembering my now because that Elon Muskosaurus <laughs> had a secretary who followed him around all the time in a, in a blue, blue car. car. See, I still remember <laughs> right, right. Because uh, he I couldn't wipe his bottom because, because in the outhouse, so the secretary could wipe his bottom in the outhouse because Elon Muskosaurus. <laughs> but, yeah, that's what was memorable. It's funny I remember it now. Good times. Good stories. So, fun stuff there, obviously, right? Anything you guys didn't care for in this game? If we were going to look at it as reviewers and being picky and whatnot. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so, I mean, as a lighter party family type game, I think we did touch on the fact that it does sometimes, depending on how long people are taking to think of things or come up with their stories, it can feel like it runs a little long Mm -hmm. for what it is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Probably took over an hour to play with my family. And for a party game, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. That's really for people cool. who don't play games a lot yeah. sure and most of that is the downtime of people putting their tiles together and trying to figure out their story right and then you're just laughing a lot so there's a lot of conversation and a lot of joking around about stuff and that's all good stuff yeah. in my opinion but it did feel like by the time you get to like the sixth or seventh round you're like okay this it's time for it to be over right mm-hmm. But I don't know that they could really shorten it a ton because you need that ramp up of the penalty getting larger to make the stakes higher. And more and more tiles in your stories. Mm. Right, yeah. 
that's the only real thing that stood out to me. Yeah, it is one of those games that I think if you have people who are invested in winning it from the very beginning and are going to be sad that they don't win mm-hmm. <laughs> or that they don't have mm-hmm. a chance to win, it's probably not a great game for them. You've got to have people that are just here for the ride, I think, yeah. for this game. Because it is, from a scoring point of view, with the numbers for getting it wrong at the end of the game, it can feel brutal, I guess, to see your stack disappear yes. <laughs> in the last two or three rounds when you're ahead so yeah if you were banking on winning and that's going to make you mad i can see how this game would frustrate you yeah i'm kind of glad you mentioned that because i did have that listed as a con too i guess it wasn't a con for me but it could be for some people and that the game is much more aggressively brutal towards people in the lead mm-hmm. because if i have zero tiles which i did in one game mm-hmm. <laughs> late in the game and i take a minus five tile penalty you don't go negative in this game So I'm just spinning my wheels at zero, basically. But if Jason has seven tiles and he's in the lead and he takes a minus five penalty and he doesn't have any blockers, now we're about even. And I've been sucking the whole game. And I could still possibly beat him, right? Right. I could see how, like you said, Bill, if somebody was taking it too seriously, that would be annoying. But I guess that kind of incentivizes me to tell better stories, right? True. get blockers. Yeah, yeah. Because the blockers can save you. No doubt. Absolutely. But yeah, I I see that point. The only other thing I would say quickly, and I only say this because of my wife, and I know the kind of game she enjoys, you need to know your people because if you're in a group of people who don't like to be on the spot, mm-hmm. this would not go over well. So for example, mm-hmm. my wife Talia doesn't even like to play Dixit mm-hmm. because she doesn't like to be on the spot of coming up with a one-word clue. This is you're taking a bunch of tiles that have nothing to do with each other mm-hmm. and forcing somebody to try to put them together in some way. Mm-hmm. And that may not be enjoyable for some people. So you just need to be aware of that. But other than that, I mean, that's all I could think of. I think that's being kind of nitpicky, honestly. But yeah, I can see that. I think that's worth saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Let's do final thoughts. You start, Jason. Wrap I us start. up. All right. I had a really good time with Asel's Brooka. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm saying that right. You said it a bunch of times, but it's funny. It's goofy. We laughed playing this game oh my gosh, more than we have at a lot of other games that we've done recently. And it's different for as simple of a concept as it is. I feel like it's different from anything that I've played mm-hmm. ever. I tend to like these types of word games mm-hmm. uh, like montage. Yep, montage. I've written montage of five, I think. Mm-hmm. This is kind of my style of game. I like these types of things where you're thinking about word puzzles and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I gave this one a four. I think that as a party game, it runs a little long. Mm-hmm. And so its usefulness in that family situation, it worked. I don't know if they would want to play it again. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So some of its versatility, I think, is is a little lower. But playing it in a group of people who know what it is and are like into it but not over the top about it, it's enjoyable to me. So yeah. I gave it a four. Nice. Cool. All right, Bill. Yeah, I'm with you. When I look at these games, what I try to do is think about the situation where the game's going to shine, right? Does it have a situation where people are going to love it and want to go back to it? And I think this one does. And it may actually be, you know, kids from 13 to 18 or something like that can really excel at it and are willing to be silly, not be self-conscious about it, or people who are drinking. (laughs) This feels like it's a, you know, it's a good drinking. That doesn't help the memory element. (laughs) No, it doesn't, but (laughs) it certainly helps the story aspect of it. 
I'm trying to think that if I can add anything beyond what Jason said. I was struggling between a four and a five, mm-hmm. but I think I'm going to go with a four two for the very reasons Jason said. Towards the end, I was ready for it to kind of be over, and I did feel a lot of angst at the very beginning of I'm going to have to remember stuff and I'm going to be embarrassed <laughs> if I don't <laughs> sort of thing. So, and, and I was, but I got over it, I mean, it, it, it and, and had fun. But yeah. I can see there's going to be a subset of people that are going to feel that way. All right, well, I'll join you guys. I'll just come right out and say I'm also going to give this game a four. I was on the four or five line for this one, too. And I will say that surprised me because when I read the rules to this game, I was just so sure that this was going to bomb and that I was just going to dump all over this game in the review. I was just sure of it. It just seemed on paper like a stupid idea. And it worked. (laughs) It really did. Mostly because it was just fun with the Monic telling. I typically don't enjoy party games. Very few I like. I mean, I can probably count on one hand. Usually because, to me, party games kind of feel half-baked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. They're just kind of like half a game, and they're not very challenging. And that's fine, but that's usually not what I'm looking for when I'm going into a game night. I'm wanting to think, right? Mm-hmm. And I will say, despite all the lightheartedness and what we've been saying about the storytelling and all that, and that is fun. If you want to do well in this game and win it, it's challenging. I mean, it it is hard to not score zero in this game. you got to really think hard. Mm -hmm. And that kept me engaged, that challenge Mm -hmm. of trying to remember the tiles. I enjoyed that part of it. So, yeah, I would say be careful who you choose to play this with. Pick the right people. But I think in certain settings, this could be really successful. And for me, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. So I'm also going to give it a four. Very cool. Awesome. All the way around. Yeah. Yeah. So how accessible is this game? Not very. So there are no copies on Noble Knight, unfortunately. And there are only six copies on BGG Marketplace. I don't know if this game would get reprinted. I feel like this game could be successful in the States, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Now, as we mentioned, it is German language, and there are some maybe small barriers to that, but not really. You're not going to know what all the pictures mean if you acquire this in German language copy, but... As long as everybody at the table agrees upon what that tile is supposed to represent, this game is completely playable. So if you do acquire a copy now, you shouldn't have any issues with it. But it's a little on the rare side. All right. And that's our thoughts on Isselbrucke. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Purists will say there's no such word as slough. You mean slough. S-L-O-U-G-H, which is pronounced as slough. When a chicken loses its feathers, some will say it's molting, but we just say the feathers slough off. While others claim a snake is shedding its skin or a sheep its wool, we know it's just a slough off. Skipping a day of school, are we? Nah, man, we just want to slough off. (laughs) And that new girl with the blue streak, the piercings, and the torn jeans, clearly she's the epitome of sloughing off. So why a card game called Slough Off? Ever duck a trick? Well, in some circles, believe it or not, that means to slough off a card. Am I messing with you? Not sure? Well, give it a try. If anyone calls you on it, just tell them to slough off! Good job, Jason. That flavor text makes about as much sense as everything everywhere all at once. What the heck would the girl with the blue jeans sloughing off? What does that even mean? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Slough off. (laughs) 
published in <laughs> 2003 by Amigo and Asmodee, designed, of course, by Stefan Dora, and currently ranked on BGG 1,656. That's high. Mm. <clears throat> so Slough Off is a standard trick-taking game. I feel like I always get these trick-taking games, and I always give the quick rundown of what a trick-taking game is for anyone who doesn't know. So we'll do it again. Yeah. So in a normal trick-taker, players beginning with the player in the lead, one at a time, play a single card to what's known as a trick. Players must follow the suit that is led unless they have no cards of that suit, in which case they can play any card they want. The highest card played of the lead suit wins the trick. Or, if one or more trumps have been played, the highest trump card wins the trick. And the winner of a trick becomes the leader of the next trick. So, (laughs) very basic overview of what trick-taking means. In Slough Off, there are five suits. Red, green, blue, yellow, and purple. And the cards are numbered from 1 to 15. However, the range of numbers that you play with depends on the player count. So, like in a normal four-player game, which is what we played it at most times, it's 1 through 12. Mm -hmm. The blue suit is always trump. But where this game gets interesting is in its bidding. Mm -hmm. So before playing out a hand, in turn order, players will bid based on how many tricks they think they will win in that hand. In the center of the table, there will be several minus two victory point chips for each colored suit. Three chips for each of the non-Trump suits or non-blue suits, and then five chips for the blue suit. Players will take these chips and place them in front of themselves And at any point during the hand, when a player wins a trick, they can discard a chip from in front of themselves, matching the color of the lead suit for that trick, thus getting rid of that minus two victory points. So, for example, if I have a purple victory point chip in front of myself, I win a trick in which purple was lead, I can discard that chip. So, in other words, I don't mean to interrupt your rules, but just to make sure it's clear to our listeners, you took that chip during the bidding phase because you thought you would catch a purple trick and now you did as you predicted and now you're getting rid of that minus two correct never interrupt my rules again chris (laughs) (laughs) that's my joke (laughs) Uh, all right Uh, all right so if the hand ends however and the player has not been able to get rid of a particular chip they take that minus two points. So why would you ever take these chips in the first place if the best you can do is not taking the minus two victory points? (laughs) So for every trick that a player wins for which they did not have a chip in front of them corresponding to the color of that trick, that player receives a black minus three victory point chip. Just to note, you might have picked up on this already, but there are no positive points in this game. You are trying to be the least negative overall. (laughs) So zero is the best you can do. So the last very important mechanism, the sluffer. (laughs) So when bidding, a player may choose, instead of taking chips, to take the sluffer, if it's still available. The sluffer is represented by a small plastic figurine of some ducks. Why? No, they're ducks. What? Yeah, that's why the flavor text says... Ever duck a trick? Oh, gosh. They certainly look like chickens to me. Oh, man. They're for sure ducks. Why ducks? Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) Why anything in this game? The theme is crazy. But the player who takes the sluffer takes no chips, and they can win any and all tricks in the hand without penalty. (laughs) Bill's getting the 
the sluffer out of the box okay, as we speak. We're throwing the challenge flag on this. this. We are. This, the, these are chickens. They're very much this ducks. This is not a duck. <laughs> they're little ducks. No way. All right. Yeah. Well, go ahead. We'll deal with this later. <laughs> All right. We're getting distracted. <laughs> anyway, the player who takes the sluffer doesn't take any minus victory point chips. And they can win any and all tricks in the hand without any penalty. However, in exchange for that ability, they take a default minus four victory points, but with the chance to reduce mm-hmm. this amount by one victory point for each black minus three victory point token that the other players at the table end up taking during the hand. And that's pretty much it. So basically, you're just trying to screw everything up. Right. You're the chaos monkey. Yes. <laughs> in, in this hand. Players play one hand per player in the game, with each player getting one chance to deal, and the least negative score after that many rounds wins the game. So, for a game that's called Slough Off, I feel like we need to talk about the sluffer. Oh, yeah. This is kind of the the weirdest element of this game. Wow, you're opening with that? That's crazy. The the monkey wrench that we got to. Thrown into what is otherwise a pretty normal bidding, trick-taking game. Mm -hmm. So, what did you guys think about the sluffer? and how it was used okay bill's gesturing me to start i will start i think that there are pros and cons with the sluffer and we'll get into the cons i think it's okay but we'll start with good things and i think there are good things to say about the sluffer Mm -hmm. i will say that when you are the sluffer Mm -hmm. that is fun absolutely may not be fun for your opponents (laughs) (laughs) because as jason said when you're the sluffer you are just an agent of chaos okay Mm -hmm. But playing as the sluffer is incredibly fun. Mm-hmm. Not only because you're inducing pain upon your opponents, <laughs> but you're doing it in a thoughtful way. Chris's wheelhouse. It, oh, man. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> so there's kind of two ways you can go about it. You can either play your hands in such a way that you are not allowing your opponent to catch tricks that you know they need to catch to get rid of tokens from in front of them. So let's mm-hmm. say Jason has a lot of red tokens in front of him and he's trying to catch red and I'm not suited in red. I just keep trumping over red and Jason can't ever get rid of his reds. Right. That's fun for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Or, and I think I thought about this, the name slough off is a little weird. So I was trying to figure out why it has this name. I think another way you can play the sluffer and the way that you probably get people to catch tricks they don't intend to catch is by as the sluffer sloughing off your very high value tricks. Absolutely. Or your very high value cards into other tricks, thereby lowering the number by which people will catch with a certain color. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. If which you can manage to do it, which can be kind of tricky creates to do, chaos, right? Yeah, exactly. So, all that to say, for me, when you play as a sluffer, it's almost, well, it's not almost, you're playing a completely different game than the other players at the mm. table. Yeah. And it's fun to try to navigate that, but you are definitely creating chaos for sure. I agree. I absolutely love the sluffer. And, and again, <laughs> given the crowded market of trick takers, the sluffer is the thing that makes this yes. game absolutely interesting. For sure. And I think it's a great component to add to it to just make you think really hard, whether you're the sluffer or not, how to play your hand. Because without it, I think this isn't a game. Mm-hmm. With, and with the sluffer, you're really thinking, okay, how is he going to play his card on this? Yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this game overall. Which will come out as we talk about it more. Yeah. But I feel like I have mixed feelings about the sluffer too. The first time we mm-hmm. played this game, I destroyed everybody. And I didn't use the sluffer one time. 
But I think it was because we didn't understand the purpose of the sulfur yet. Mm -hmm. We hadn't figured out how it's useful. Once we started figuring out what it was useful for, then it became much more of a liability to the point where it felt like when you have the opportunity to take the sulfur, you take the sulfur. Yes. So to go back to the rules a little bit, just to make sure everybody's clear. So with the sluffer, you are off the hook for having to catch the tricks that you said you were going to catch or not catch the tricks yeah. you said you don't you have to make any predictions. You, yeah, you don't have to worry about any of that. Which is nice. Yeah, that's great. And you just get a blanket minus four victory points, which might sound bad, but unless you're playing with professional slough off players, <laughs> at least one person is going to end up yeah. taking a black chip, probably. So, even if, even if you didn't make it happen. Yeah, yeah. They may just I, I would, made a mistake. Yeah, yeah, I would argue a lot of times it's because you didn't make it happen. It's just because, you know, mm. I mean, you, yeah. We yeah. could quibble there, but yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. So you're probably talking minus three points overall, right? Guaranteed. I'd say minus two on average, probably. Probably, right? Which in an average hand of this, I mean, yeah, you can go zero sometimes. But on average... If you're playing well and you don't get screwed over, which we'll talk about that as well, you're probably doing about minus two or minus three or minus four in any given hand, right? It's like, why would you not take it? Yeah. A, you get the chance to mess with everybody and B, you're safe for that round. Yeah. Right. So while I agree that it is a fun position to play, if you know how to play it well and you have a good hand for it, because you just get to mess with everybody and be a jerk. At the same time, it kind of feels like a non-decision mm-hmm. point, like where it's like, well, when I have the chance to take the suffer, I'm taking it, whether I have a good hand for it or not, because the worst <laughs> I'm going to do is minus two, and that's a pretty darn good hand. Yeah. And I, I, Bill, I'm going to let you talk. I'm just going to interject <laughs> real quickly. Bill's chomping at the bits to say something, and what Jason's alluding to, I'm just going to add on to his comment right here, is if you don't take the sluffer, if you take a minus 10 hand round, which you can absolutely do in this game, mm-hmm. you're kind of out of it at that That's point. True. And so in a way, I think what Jason's saying is the sluffer feels like a safety or a, a nice comfort blanket because you know you can't have that happen to you this round where you're just going to get wrecked and be out of the game. And, ma- and maybe we were metagaming it, but I mean, it got to the point where it was like, well, whoever dealt the next person who's the first person to bid takes the sluffer. And it just goes around the table as each person deals, the person next to them takes the sluffer. Because if you don't, the next person's going to take it, and then you don't get the chance to take it first ever again. Right. right? And so it started, it felt like it was becoming a non-decision point of just like, well, everybody's going to get to be the sluffer one time. Maybe that was meta stuff that was going on with our group think, right? Yeah, I I, I mean, weigh in, Bill. My devil's advocate here. I absolutely feel like it is kind of a safety thing. I won't say that it's a cop-out, but I do think you can have a hand where there were two of the rounds that we played in our last game where people took the sluffer and there was no black chips given out. So they took the full minus four. And I think on average, you take as an individual player less than minus four. So no, I don't think so. I think a lot of people be happy to have minus four at the end of a round. Maybe. And I will absolutely agree that hands vary and there are hands that lend themselves to taking the sluffer. But I think there's also hands that lend themselves to being really close to zero. And I think you can look at it and say, you know what? I got a lot of low in here. I got a long suit that sure. I'm not going to take any here. I've got a 12 in this and nothing else. I feel pretty good about that. I don't know. I, How I, often does that happen? I don't know, but I think if you played a game and you played the sluffer every hand, I don't think that person would win. Hmm. 
that may be true. I'm not arguing with the fact that there are not some instances where it would be wiser mm-hmm. to play your hand out and get zero. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times in this game, because you've got five suits that run one to 12, you often get wild distributions of cards. And the temptation <laughs> to just be like, you know what? I'm not even going to risk it and just try to screw up other people and take my probably minus three or minus two or sometimes even zero. I mean, there's several times I played the Sluffer and got zero for the round because mm-hmm. everybody else did so bad. I mean, there was one game I took the Sluffer three times and I scored zero, zero, minus two. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I don't say it's necessarily say it's a bad thing. I think it's a great addition to the game and I do think it's still a decision point on whether you take it or not. Yeah, I, I think what Jason and I are advocating for is we like the mechanism of the sluffer and feel free to chime in here, Jason. I don't want to speak for you, but I think you would agree with what I'm saying. Yeah. It's fun to play as it. It's a cool idea, but the upfront penalty needs to be more harsh because I don't feel like there should be a mechanism, a game where I feel like I'm lucking out by getting something. I'm like, Oh, the sluffer sweet. Now I don't have to worry so much. If the penalty was more harsh, I would think longer about it and be like, Ooh, is this a good spot? to do this here or should I just try to play my hand? Never felt like I was really having those decisions unless my hand was just very clear and easy what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we talked about, because I totally agree, we talked about a couple options of like, well, maybe it should be worth minus eight and every time you force somebody to take a minus three, you lose two of that. Right, right. right. But at the same time, you have to find some happy balance there, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you do get stuck not giving anybody minus tokens, minus eight's huge. Right, that's that's a huge penalty too. Yeah, yeah, right. But at the same time, I mean, that's about the same amount of risk that you're taking on doing a normal hand. And it might make you think more about is my hand good for the sluffer, right? As opposed Mm -hmm. to I'm just going to take the sluffer because I can't do worse than minus four, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I think you would have to see how other players on the board are playing out first. If there's four of you and you see two people put out very few tokens and you have high cards and low cards in your hands you've been in a good position to slough off to force people to take more yeah and i'll mention one more thing i know we're talking a lot about sluffer but that's really kind of feel like the majority of what you got to talk about in this game i'm going to take a slightly different direction back to good things mm-hmm. and you alluded to this a little bit earlier bill i do like the fact that the sluffer and this does make it harder for the players but it alleviates a problem that i have with these bidding games introduces kind of a fog of war mechanic to the mm-hmm. bidding absolutely because mm-hmm. in a lot of trick-taking games where you're trying to predict like ghost of christmas or oh hell a game i grew up playing i talk about often on this show there's always that temptation to make the bid even quote unquote like you were saying bill if we were playing 12 tricks and there are three tricks that aren't accounted for because I can see Bill's taking four and Jason's taking five. Okay, that leaves three. I should take three. Right. In this game, because the sluffer's in play and somebody takes the sluffer, I don't know how many they think they're going to take or not going to take. Mm-hmm. And that puts an increased burden on me to really try to work out in my mind how many do I really think I'm going to catch without just counting how many are up for grabs. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which to me incorporates a lot of challenge into the game, which I actually kind of enjoyed. It does make it harder, but I liked that part of it. This is maybe a negative, but when I was talking about the fact that you can see when people have tokens out there, like two reds or two purples or whatever, it often removes a decision point in your hand about what you're going to play. Because you know... Yeah, it helps. Yeah, you know what somebody else is going to do. And I think when you have a sluffer out there, 
it adds another dimension to make you think about how it's really all going to play out in the end. So, yeah, you really yeah. have to rethink the way you play your hand in this game. This is another thing I like. I'm glad you mentioned it. If Jason's got two purple tokens in front of him and you've got a purple token in front of you, you know, in most trick-taking games, if I want to get off the lead, I play a really low number of a suit, right? right? Like a one or a two. If I know that about you two, I can play like an eight or a nine of a purple, which is normally risky. But if I know y'all need to catch purple by me looking at what y'all say you're going to catch, it guides me and helps me get rid of a higher value card, right? Which is also kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I like that piece of it. It did make me think, though, as we were playing it more. And again, maybe this is groupthink stuff, but it started to feel like anytime somebody takes a chip, I'm like, well, they have the 11 or the 12 of that color. Right. right, sure, yeah. And as a bidder, if you don't have the 11 or the 12, I'm not taking a chip. Because every time I had anything lower than an 11 and I took a chip, I never got rid of it, mm-hmm. right? Because the sluffer being there, that many trumps being out, you're going to start getting trumped below 11, mm-hmm. right? And so I don't know how I felt about that part. Because yes, like you just said, I like the fact that it kind of tweaks what you can throw and still be safe. But at the same time, it's like, open information almost of like all right well bill's got the red 12 and chris has got the blue 12 and cameron's got the green 12 and the yellow 12 and maybe the 11 because he took two of those i don't know it felt like it kind of took some of the like you talked about the fog of war like the sluffer definitely creates that but at the same time you have all this concrete information about the top end of the deck which felt weird to me see i feel like i bid on tens and nines and caught with them I had two couple times, especially if I had like seven, eight, and ten. You know, I felt like I don't have any way to not. I don't have a low card to throw off. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that can be true. If you don't have any low numbers to go with it, mm-hmm. yeah. balance it out. Yeah. It's tricky. But I'm being. We've been talking a lot here. Should we just move into final thoughts? I don't want to cut us short, but I know we're getting kind of deep into strategy here. Maybe we should just say how we feel about it at this point, right? Sure. Sure. Bill, start us off. Wow, this is another one that I was surprised I liked it as much as I do. I like trick-taking games a lot. Yes, um, you do. Yep. Yeah, gr- growing up with Rook and Spades and Euchre and all those. And whenever a new one comes out, I'm chomping at the bit to play it. And this one kind of surprised me as far as giving me a challenge to think through things. I will say one other last thing with this information on the board. One of the things that you don't want to have is the lead at the very end. Oh, gosh, really, no. It is really... You'll be catching with threes. Exactly. You, yeah. you, with you, you get the lead, the, you get rid of your chips, and you get out. <laughs> right, exactly. And so it does give you a strategy as you're looking at the board. Is like, okay, what do I need to have in my hand to make sure I'm not having the lead at the mm-hmm, end? Mm-hmm. And so to me, this gave you just lots of dimensions of that and nuances. And, and I know you guys are going to crack on the slough off, but I love the slough off thing. And I think it's... it's <laughs> Even at four, it's weighted to let me get it so I don't have to worry about it. However, I still like that it's there, and I think it's good enough with the number it is. Anyway, I will give this game another one that I'm really struggling between a four and a five. Um, hmm. but I'm, I'm surprised. I thought you'd give it a five easy. Yeah, I don't. You might, are you being biased by us? Because when maybe. we were playing this game, you, All right. you acted like you were loving it, man. I was loving it. I Love. am loving it. But I didn't want it to be tainted for me just because I finished close to the top. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll give it a five. I like this game. If you're looking for a trick taking game that's different than anything else that's out there, I think this is a good one to get. Mm-hmm. All right, this game was a roller coaster ride for me. <laughs> 
I played this game several times before this review. Six at least. I just happened to be able to get it played a lot. And almost every time I played this game, after I walked away from it, I walked away angry. <laughs> <laughs> just felt mad about how the tricks went and how it was going. And uh, as I've mentioned, similar to you, Bill, I grew up playing trick-taking games and feel like I have a good grasp of them. And I was like, man, what am I not doing right here? And I think I had just determined that they're just forces out of my control that I can't account for. And that's why I was doing bad. sucks out. Very, very arrogantly, I might add. <laughs> I'm actually quite good at trick-taking games, Bill. But <laughs> I was not playing this one well. But I think what I figured out and what I kept coming back to, the reason I played it so much is because after I thought about the game for a while, I kept thinking about things that maybe I should be doing differently. Because I think my flaw here... And I think it's just good game philosophy in general. Is I was trying to play this game like I would play Oh Hell, right? But this isn't Oh Hell. Right. This is slough off, right? But Oh Hell is similar. You're trying to predict your tricks, but it's a very different game. Mm-hmm. And I was doing bad because I was trying to make this game what it wasn't. And I think the more I thought about the game and the more that I thought about strategies, I did get better and better at this game the more that I played it. And I think that that belies that there are some, there is strategy here and there are things you can do to improve your hand and there are things you can do to increase your probability of winning. However, <laughs> it should be noted, again, the sluffer is an agent of chaos. And I am convinced, although there are things you can do to reduce your risk, there are going to be some times that you're going to catch with a purple four when you feel like you have no business catching with a purple four and there's just nothing you can do about that. If that sounds like that might make you crazy, then maybe you shouldn't play this game. And it made me crazy sometimes. But I do think there are things you can do to help prevent against that. You just need to be aware of the sluffer is an agent of chaos and you just need to try to stay out of its way. All that to say, after thinking about this game a lot, I am going to give it a four. I want to continue exploring it. I think I'm getting better at it. But uh, this is a tricky one. I'll tell you, just be warned. I'm actually interested to hear what Jason's going to say because we we talked about this game a ton. We did. Yeah, we did. So for as much as I was ragging on this game throughout this review, I feel like I was playing devil's advocate for a lot of this review. I did not hate my plays of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like I was getting worse at it the more I played it, (laughs) (laughs) which... Usually tells me that there's more to it than I originally thought, just like Chris, except Chris gets better at games over time and I get worse at them, apparently. Anytime I play a trick-taking game or a card game in general, I'm always trying to compare it to the games that I really love in this genre and try to think about it from the perspective, okay, well, why do I love that game and why do I feel differently about this game or why do I feel the same about this game? And so I kept trying to compare this to Teach You, right? We talk Mm -hmm. about Teach You all the time. Some of the big gripes that kept coming up were like, well, you know, if the sluffer is in the game and he's offsuited in something from the start, then you can end up getting screwed and you catch with the purple four, right? And you will, yeah. And that happens. Yeah. But I'm like, well, but you can also get bombed and teach you, right? And there, sure. there are situations out of your control in a game that I would rate a seven on our scale right. of <laughs> one to six right. right? easily. There's just as much fog of war and things that are out of your control in a game like that so while there is impredict unpredictability impredictability unpredictability (laughs) in this game i don't think that's abnormal and i think if that bothers you then maybe this isn't a game to try but i think i had to get over that as i was thinking about it 
because it's just an element of the game that you have to kind of bank on like sometimes this is going to happen and you play around it now all that said it kind of still comes back to like a did i enjoy overall playing this game and what would i rank it compared to something like teach you i was really struggling between a three and a four Mm -hmm. on, on this one just like you were chris i think that when it came down to it i don't know that i'm confident enough yet in my plays of it to be able to say that that's all there is to it yeah i think when i look at it as i was saying i was like it starts to feel like maybe there's patterns maybe you get the lead you play your 12s then you get out and if you manage to do that great if you don't then you're gonna get screwed with the lead at the end maybe there's like this sluffer pattern i'm still not convinced those things aren't an issue but I enjoyed the game enough exploring it. And I think that there's probably enough there that I would want to keep playing it and keep exploring it. So for now, for me, it's a four. It could end up at a three with more plays if those patterns start to establish themselves more than they already have. That may not be super helpful, but I mean, we played this game a lot. We did. And trick-taking games are complex, right? So it takes a long time, at least for me. I didn't grow up playing trick-taking games. So it takes a while for me to process how a trick-taking game works and like I said, usually I get worse at it over time. So yeah, I think for me, I enjoyed it enough that I think it's worth trying. Yeah. And I think it's a game worthy of exploring, but I think I'd have to explore it more to see where I would finally end up. Yeah. And for the record, so we don't get hate mail out there, I know Teach You is not a trick-taking game. It's a ladder climbing <laughs> game. But right. we use it as a comparison point a lot, and there's a lot of similarities. So Yep. All right. Those are our thoughts. <laughs> That's um, right. Slough off. Well, we got we got to talk about where we can get it. Oh yeah. I would recommend people check this one out. You know, Jason said, you know, you were between a three and a four, and I was too, with the potential to maybe go up. Mm-hmm. I I still think there are things about this game that I'm figuring out. You know, I had mentioned this game reminds me of Oh Hell, but with some major differences, and there are just ways you play your hand in this game that are just not like normal trick taking games, which I'm intrigued to continue to explore. Even since we played it last time, I've thought more about it. So if all this intrigues you, like I said, I gave it a four, Jason gave it a four, Bill gave it a five, maybe not out of the park, but if you're like trick-taking, I would recommend giving this one a go. And I've got good news for you. Although, unfortunately, there are no copies at Noble Knight of this game. This game was most recently reprinted by Eagle Griffin Games. Oh, wow. And it is on sale on their website for $5. I'm getting Hmm. it right now. (laughs) Yeah. Five dollars. Okay. If you like trick taking games at all, I think you owe it to yourself to get this and test it out and see what you think and compare your ideas to ours and where you think our logic may be flawed or whatnot. It'd be interesting to hear what y'all think. So yeah, very available. Direct from Eagle Griffin. And please phrase your response. Chris's logic was flawed with <laughs> so, so we'll know exactly what I won this the last time we played. It was the only time I won. <laughs> and I won the first time we played. And it was the only time I won. I won the time before. Yeah. Those are our thoughts on Slavoff. You ended up in Africa, in Marrakesh. You'll soon have enough money to buy another store start earning even more income. A clever trader like you knows how to get help wherever you are. Your last Durham's you buy yourself a small shop in the old town and wait for customers who bring money into your register. 
The small problem is, visitors only enter certain shops. However, most of the city's visitors are still outside the city walls, only slowly pouring in. Your task now is to lure as many visitors as possible into your shop. Soon, you'll have enough money to buy another store and start earning even more. Whoever has earned the most terms wins in the end. Were you yeah. doing Robin Williams and Agrabah? Yeah, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, I was trying to do the... Uh... Agrabah! What's the song from Aladdin? Arabian Nights. Where's Cameron when we need him? Take a trip. Come on by. <laughs> Take a carpet and fly. <laughs> Love it. All right, Marrakesh. Wait for you to get back to your seat, Bill. That's all right. Okay, before you start, get you get you another beer. <laughs> calm down. <laughs> this is gonna be a hard one. Marrakesh, published in 1996 by Cosmos. That's it. It's only been printed one time in 1996. That's the same age as my kids. It's crazy. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 2,777. Stefan Dezora, Stefan Dezora, Stefan Dora, the only designer. How did we hear about this one? Well, this game has come heavily recommended by numerous people in our guild. And let me just say, they like it a lot. All right. Okay, so this was recommended by Ghidorah, Ultimo Ratio, Querty Martin, John Hubbard, Tori Larson, and many others. Those are just the people that wrote comments on our recommended games list on the BGG geek mm-hmm. list mm-hmm. in the guild. This game has 20 thumbs to be reviewed for our 50th episode, but it was not in the top three. Oh, wow. But that was a lot of people. Huh. Okay. So a lot of people like this game. Brief rules summary for Marrakesh. Marrakesh is a shared incentives auction game where the players are auctioning and purchasing stores and moving groups of customers throughout the city in an attempt to be the most profitable merchant. The game board in Marrakesh consists of a 13 by 9 square grid. Roughly half of the squares on the game board are divided up into 2 by one square rectangles of five different colors, red, blue, green, purple, and yellow. These rectangles are stores, and these stores are often adjacent to other colored stores and have varying numbers of entrances depending upon its location within the city. The intervening squares between the stores are the alleyways through which the customers move. The customers come in five different colors and correspond to the five different colors of store. Printed at varying locations along all the alleyways are circular fountains. The fountains are important because when groups of customers move within the city, they move from fountain space to fountain space, often covering several squares of distance in between. There are also three special dark blue circular fountain spaces at play in the game. These spaces start the game with three uniquely colored customers on them, and new customers will enter the city via one of these three fountain spaces. Alright, the gameplay in Marrakesh is incredibly simple. On your turn, you can either put up a vacant, unowned store for auction, or you can move customers around in the city. That's it. However, it should be noted that on your turn you can do two actions. So you can auction a store and then auction again. A different store you can move customers twice either the same group twice or two different groups one time or you can move a group of customers and then auction 
You cannot auction and then move. All right, let's begin by talking about auctions. During the auction action, the active player will put up an unknown store for auction. The auction is a standard English-style auction, so if you're not familiar with what that is, it's the most common type where you put up a value, the person to your left has to exceed it, continue goes on just around and around like that until everybody passes, highest bidder wins. The high bidder in this game gets to take control of that store for the rest of the game, placing a marker on it showing ownership. However, it's important that when you place a store up for auction, if you place it up for auction and you win it, you just pay your bid and you get the store. If somebody else wins that store, they get the store, but you get a cut of those proceeds. So if the store sells for 500 Durham or less, you get 100 Durham of that. And if it sells for greater than 500, you get 200 Durham of that total sale. Now, let's talk about customer movement. As mentioned previously, customers move from fountain space to fountain space. If a group is chosen to move, all customers on that space must move and they must all move in the same direction towards the same fountain. If there are already customers present on that destination fountain, they will merge together with the moving customers to form a large group. This group will then move together going forward. But what happens if a customer moves past an entrance to a shop that is the same color as that customer? If the shop is unowned, Nothing happens. The customer just continues on to the destination fountain. However, if the shop is owned by a player, that customer must enter that shop and it will remain there for the rest of the game, generating a payout. So the way payouts work is pretty simple. The first customer to enter a shop of that color gets the owner 100 Durham. The second, 200, the third, 300, all the way up to 500. And then every customer after the fifth just continues to generate 500. Now, there's one additional recall that's very important to understand. If the customer moves into a shop because you moved it and you were the shop owner, you just get that payout. But what happens if somebody else moves that customer and it causes that customer to enter your shop? So in other words, the person moving the group doesn't own the shop the customer enters. If this happens, they get a cut of that income. If the payout is 300 or less, the mover gets 50 Durham per customer. If the payout is greater than 300, the mover gets 100 per customer. So let me give you an example. So let's say I move a group and it's got two yellow customers in it and they move into Jason's shop. He owns the yellow shop they pass by. And that is the third and the fourth customer that enters that shop. Well, that will generate 300 for the third and 400 for the fourth for a total of 700 Durham. Since that total sale exceeds 300, I get $100 or 100 Durham per customer. So of the 700 that Jason would get, he gets 500 and I get 200 of it. Because I moved to them. Mm -hmm. That is very important to understand. Yep. Okay? All right. If at the end of a player's turn, at least one of the dark blue entry fountain spaces is empty, the player gets to add two, three, or four new customers to one of these fountain spaces, which will be available for movement going forward. So I didn't explain this in the setup. But the rest of the customers, all 45 of them, are set up in a long line. When you add new customers to the board in one of these three fountain spaces, you can pull from either end of the line, but you have to pull in order, and it can be two, three, or four from either end. 
As soon as no more customers are available to add to the city, the end of the game is triggered. Each player gets one more turn, and then the player with the most cash on hand at the end of the game is the winner. So stores or real estate doesn't mean anything. It's just the amount of money you have in your possession at the end of the game is all that matters. That's generally how you play Marrakesh. Simple. Simple. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Where to start? (laughs) So it is simple in a way to understand how to play. How to be good at this game is not simple. But as I alluded to in the rules, on your turn, you can only do one of two things. You either put up a store for auction or you move. That's it. That is it. Mm -hmm. Easy to understand that. Right. Okay. So I think what we'll do for this particular review is we'll begin by talking about the auction portion. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that for a while, our feelings, and then we'll talk about the movement portion, Mm -hmm. since those are the only two things you can do in this game. Right. And then we'll kind of put it all together and then go into our final thoughts. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. How'd you guys feel about the auction? (laughs) (laughs) Good kickoff question, Chris. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. These auctions. (laughs) I'll start. One of the fascinating things that I thought about the auction is trying to place value uh, each one of the shops. Because mm-hmm. as you might imagine, where the customers are coming in from the outside, you know that customers are going to hit those when they first move. And so likely. That, yeah, likely going to hit that. Not necessarily guaranteed. Right, right. It's true. Because you have at least three different three, ways you exactly, can go. Three yeah. directions to go. And you might, might miss your store. But at least you have a higher chance. Sure. I guess of it going there. There's also three different locations those customers might end up, right? <laughs> exactly. So just because you see customers at the end of the line doesn't mean they're going to end up in the space you think they're going to oh, end up. Oh, it's true, but I mean, you're trying to play the odds, right? You're sure. Tr- and if you're trying to assign a value on a completely blank board, the ones on the outside are probably worth more. What was fascinating to me was when my money started getting a little short trying to figure out what are the least valuable properties <laughs> to mm. give to other people if I thought I wasn't going to win it. But I don't know. I don't. That's interesting. So you didn't, I don't want to interrupt your thoughts, but maybe this will be a good discussion. You didn't think about auctioning what you thought were really good spots, even though you knew you wouldn't be able to get them to get the $200 better payout? Or you thought it was better to maybe just give people crap or try to get it cheap yourself? When I felt like I wasn't going to get it, I wanted to give people crap. Okay, <laughs> interesting. It, yeah, which, yeah. It, which maybe was not the best choice. There's so much depth to this. There's a lot to think about, yeah. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. but to me, it was it was fairly easy to say, you know, I'm going to go on the outside. I could look at the colors of the customers coming up and kind of make a guess at what might be coming next. So that would help lead me to a clue about what shop I might want to pick on the outside. If I thought I was going to win, the trickier part became to me, when I thought I wasn't going to win. And you're right. That is a real challenge to think about, okay, do I want to give somebody a high value so I get a lot of commission? Or do I want to have them buy a shop that I don't think is going to give them a lot of payoff in the end? Interesting. But they don't, they're not obligated to buy that shop either, right? <laughs> no, so. but at the beginning of the game, I think people were, I mean, at least in our games, people would pay for it. If it's cheap enough. Exactly. Yeah. These auctions. Tricky. I tricky, love auction tricky. games. I feel like more so than any recent auction game that I can remember, the valuations of stuff in this is so hard. So hard. Mm -hmm. Because not only there are a lot of factors that go into it, but those factors are continually changing. (laughs) So it's not just that you have to be thinking about, all right, what customers are coming up next? Where are those customers going to end up? What's on the board and where are they in relation to where this shop is? How many customers are even left? 
to yeah. come through. Mm-hmm. Who else is competing with me for those same customers? Mm-hmm. Where are those shops located? Yep. All that stuff. Where mm-hmm. are they in turn order related to me? Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There are mm-hmm. so many things that factor into that. Plus, and it takes then, a while for you to become profitable. Mm-hmm. Right. If you yeah. buy a store for $600, mm-hmm. then at minimum, you get three customers in there, you've broke even. Mm-hmm. Which is hard. Which is hard. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, all of that information is continually changing because yes. other people are grabbing customers from the end of the line and putting mm-hmm. them where they want them to be. People are moving <laughs> groups of customers around the board. And yeah, yeah. it's a crunchy one for yes. sure. I don't think I've fully grasped, even in the plays that we had 100%, how to accurately value stuff in this game. But Absolutely. it's a fascinating puzzle to try to figure out. No doubt. Yeah, I love the valuations in this, trying to figure out what is the right price? Because as we mentioned, $600 doesn't seem like a lot, but if you can't get people in there. Mm-hmm. If you only get three in there, you broke even. But if you got seven in there, that was a steal, right? Mm-hmm. But you got to yeah. figure out how to do that. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the auction, you know, it's interesting. We've talked about philosophies about what you would put up for auction. One of the things that I tried to do was put stores up for auction near mine that looked good that I had no intention of winning. Mm-hmm. But the reason I did that is to let somebody else win that to incentivize them mm-hmm. to move their people into that shop while also bringing my people by my shop and mm-hmm. doing work for me, right? Right. You're creating those incentives for your opponents. If you mm-hmm. just try to do it on yourself this game, you're not going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But if I can let you have a shop right. near one of my shops, then we begin to work synergistically, right? Or you're working for me. Which is what I want, right? That was one of the things I really enjoyed about the auction part of this game, for sure, was figuring out how to make that work. Yeah. The other part of these auctions, which is not unique to this game, but is a part of auction games that I've always loved, Medici being one of the games Mm, that we talk about a lot as being like a, a fantastic auction game, and it is. But one of the things that makes that game so interesting and yet so simple is the fact that you are bidding with your points. Yes. So you're bidding with money, but your money is your points. Mm -hmm. And it's the same here. So everything that you bid is what you win the game with. (laughs) So if you spend too much (laughs) on your shops, you're not going to win the game. If you spend $900 for one shop (laughs) that looks like it's going to be profitable, (laughs) you're not going to (laughs) win. But I love that about auction games. Yeah. It's true. I'm reminded of me spending, and I don't remember how much I spent, but it was probably too much on a red shop that was competing with one of Jason's shops, and he was to my right. And just having this mental aha moment of how this is going to play out from now on, especially when he's ahead of me and any customers get put on that shop because he can have them go by his shop. As Chris pointed out, what I should have done was to think about how I could set up an auction to have another person near my red shop so right. they would have been motivated to go my direction. Right. And I just, I didn't, that wasn't in my imagination when, I, when that happened. And I should have. That would have been a, a great way to have challenged, I guess, Jason's shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Creating those incentives, I think, is key in this game. And I'm glad you mentioned the similarly colored shops as mm-hmm. well. Because... This game is just filled with ways that you can mess over your opponents. You need to be thinking about that constantly. It's mean. It is pretty mean. And one of the things I enjoyed doing to people and didn't like it when it was happening to me (laughs) is putting shops up for auction that somebody has the monopoly in, right? You want to have sole ownership in a color. That is nice because you're not fighting with people for those 
customers, right? You can try to make one store maximally profitable. But if your opponents are putting up the other stores constantly for auction of that color, it puts you in a bind. Because either you have to give it up to them and now you're competing with somebody for those customers or you're winning that one too with no intention of putting people in there because ideally you want them to all just go into one, right? right. Mm-hmm. Or or you're being forced to divide your customers between those two stores, even if you own them both, which is less profitable less, exactly. than them all going to one Which shop. is why it's putting them in a bind, right? right? And yeah. sometimes that forces you to do that because some of those customers might be on the other side and there's not really a practical way for them to get to your other shop right. now that that shop is owned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So much trickiness going on here. I feel like we have to talk about the last trick in here, which is putting up shops for auction when there are already customers of that color standing next to it. At the entrance. Yeah, At the entrance. So if you put up a shop for auction and there are already customers next to an entrance of that shop, they will automatically get sucked into that shop when (laughs) when it's sold. Yeah which can be devilishly strategic yes. in certain situations. Because if somebody's really counting on these customers meandering across the city and then you put up theirs. the shop for sale right next to them, it just sucks them in Vacuums the door. Vacuums them into that shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, that nope. was brilliant when yeah. Ken did that. It, it was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It took it away from Chris, which made it even Oh, I, I was thinking there's nothing they can do to stop me. Well, they can just waste their turns moving these things. And when you put that store up for auction and it, they were sitting at the entrance, I was like, oh, crap. Yeah. They're going in there, and there's nothing right. I can do to stop it. And it's like, well, you can bid on it, but it's a piddly like $100 or $200 for that customer that would have been $500 exactly. if it had gotten over to your shop. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. good stuff. There were two blues. It was. It was an excellent move. Well, I know we could talk about the auction forever, and I'm tempted to, but we'll move forward. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys think about the movement aspect? We've been talking about it a little already, so let's go ahead and go a little deeper. about If you're not auctioning and you're moving people around, what were you thinking about when you were doing this? Yeah, it's so closely tied to the auctioning, it's hard to separate out a little bit. But I mean, I think we touched a little bit on as this is a shared incentive game, you are wanting other people to do the work for you. So if you can find ways to get other people to move customers in a direction that you want them to go, obviously, that's the ideal. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm terrible at that. It didn't work out so well for me. But I think that's the general idea. And it's definitely a a strategic option here. Yeah. How did you feel about this is a question for both of you, the decision of moving customers by a shop that has a lot of people in it, knowing that you're giving them a ton of points, but you're also taking a healthy cut versus moving them maybe into a less valuable shop and getting less of a cut yourself, but denying them that. Was that anything that ever crossed your mind or you were having to work out? Oh, yeah. It did to me, but I felt like I was close to the bottom of the score. And I can see it's one of those things that, that I guess your money is actually hidden. So you don't really know what anybody else has. And yeah. So if you're keeping up with things and you think, you know, where you are in the pecking order absolutely mm-hmm. influences whether you're going to do that or not. Chris, I know towards the end of the game, you were saying, oh, well, yeah, here, I can put this in bills and be okay, but I can't put it in Ken. So yeah. <laughs> as you're moving things around. I will offer one other thing in the movement part of it. The interesting idea that you're pulling customers off of both ends of the line Yes. after you move is a big part of that strategy. And for me, almost a frustrating challenge because you're placing potential customers out there, but it's three more turns before exactly. you're the one who gets to move yes. them. And so, Chris, you're hitting the nail on the head about trying to influence people to do things that you want that I just was not good at. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Having the power to 
put the people from the ends of the line out in the starting fountain where you want is important, but does not guarantee it's going to work out for you. They could be gone in somebody else's <laughs> store before it even comes back to you. Absolutely. Because yeah. you cannot place them and then move them. Mm-hmm. You have right. to wait a whole round mm-hmm. before that happens. Yeah, totally. I will say the balance between the moving and the auctioning is really well done in this game too because it it always feels like i mean you have two actions on your turn but it always feels like uh, there's like that one other thing that i really wish i could do on this turn before everyone else gets to go and (laughs) screws up my situation yeah it's like oh i really want to move that customer in but i really need to auction this store over here but i also really need to move this group away so that it doesn't end up in this store over here yep it was a great design in that respect totally agree anything you guys didn't like about the game that i'm terrible at it does that count (laughs) I love auction games, but man, these shared incentive mixed auction things. Oh, so hard. Yeah. yeah. This is kind of in my final thoughts, but I'll toss it out here. This game's very much a controlled chaos sort of feeling as you're playing it, because at least for me, as I absorb the idea that I'm not necessarily just playing my pieces and where I want to move the customers, I really need to get in the heads and the motivations of everybody else at the table Mm -hmm. to play this game well. And I'm just not there yet. I mean, this is, to me, there's a lot of things that happened out there that felt like it was out of my control, but truly it probably is more than my control than I truly appreciate. So anyway. Trickiness of shared incentives. Mm -hmm. I'd say one thing for me, I did feel like the game arc was a little bit weird in this game, and I think it's unavoidable the way that the game is designed, but it felt like in the final third, certainly in the last quarter of the game, but in the final third, auctions were starting to peter out, and it just became a movement game, which makes sense because as the game progresses, shops are going to get less and less valuable because there are less people that can go into them, but I don't know. It was just kind of a weird thing to where I felt like in our last few turns, people were just moving, move, 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 move. And again, I get why it was that way, but I don't know. It just felt weird. Maybe that was just me. But yeah, for an auction game, it feels like there should be something that incentivizes the auctions at the to, end to still continue to be valuable. There was just no reason to do it. It seemed like towards the end, and everybody just started moving a lot. At the right. end. That doesn't bother me one bit. <laughs> <laughs> was it a Tonga Bonga kind of feeling? Uh, for you? <laughs> no, I I don't think it hurt the game. It just felt weird. It felt like almost a different game at the end, mm-hmm. you know, where these auctions were so important. We're trying to set up space. And then at the end, we're just moving people around, hoping it works out as best as it can. I do think us. that is like a an important decision point in the game, right? Knowing that there are those two phases. Yeah. You basically have to make a decision of like, okay, at what point do I stop buying things? Winter shop's not important right. anymore, and do yeah. and i focus on just moving and profiting off of what other people are trying to do sure uh, shall we wrap it up yeah man yep i think it's my turn mm-hmm. marrakesh man this is one of those games i wish i had gotten to play more it's so deep and i, I will be totally honest the first time we played this mm-hmm. i wasn't blown away by it i wasn't super impressed i was like that was it you know and i mm-hmm. think actually i don't think i know that was just because there was so much I missed the first go around. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't seeing a fraction of what was going on in this game. And the more that we played it, the more it started becoming apparent to me what was going on in this game and the more impressed I became by the design. As simple as it is, from a rules standpoint, the depth of decisions was just really interesting. This is one of those games that I would love to play with somebody that's really good at it mm-hmm. and it's played it like 15 times and just get killed. Mm-hmm. 
just to see all the stuff that they know that I haven't even figured out yet. I think mm-hmm. this is that kind of a game. I think we're just scratching the surface yeah. of what is going on here. I have no doubt in my mind there are some listeners that are like, how can they not mention that? Why are they not talking about this? <laughs> and to be honest, it's probably because we don't even realize that's a thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I Absolutely. mean, there's just so much to think about here that I don't think we've gotten to yet. But all that to say, I think this game is great. This game is the kind of game that's just in my wheelhouse right now. Depth complexity with low rules overhead mm-hmm. really enjoyed it and excited to explore it more i think it's a good one i'm going to give it a five awesome cool yeah that was a pretty good summary chris i don't honestly know that i have a whole lot to add so i'm not going to ramble on i also landed on a five for this one although i seriously considered a six yeah for a while like you said i was not impressed at all with this game the first time we played it. in fact i did not like it the first time we played it <laughs> I was like, this is kind of lame. <laughs> but the more we played it and the more we realized what was actually going on, it just got better. And how bad we were the first time. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I set it on a five. Not not a whole lot else to add. Nice. Yeah, Chris, I think you really said it all to me in that this is a game that needs to be played more to really get a good feel for how anybody's going to play it. Because, yeah, I went on a similar curve. Actually, I mean, I kind of liked it at first, partly because... Maybe because you guys have played it before, and I could see the fact that you were making things work on the board, and that I knew I wasn't. And maybe that's the same feeling that you have of wanting to see that person who's played it a bunch mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to see that you guys were doing things that I hadn't quite figured out yet. Right. But yeah, I'm going to give it a five as well. I nice. think I think it's got a lot of growth to scratching that strategy itch. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, love to play it with some of our listeners sometime. I know, like I said. This game is beloved by a lot of them, and I have no doubt we would just get thrashed because I think we just still aren't even close to grasping what all this game has to offer, which is exciting, honestly. Mm -hmm. Somebody reprint this game. Good grief. You know what I mean? I feel like we've collected quite a decent stash of games. Yes. Like, these should be reprinted. Yes. There you go. I mean, it's nutty. I I guess this is a good segue into where you can get it. Well, nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) There are, no the- <laughs> copies of, there are no copies of Noble Knight. There's one copy on BGG Marketplace for $70. Wow. That is it. Like I said, this game was printed one time by one publisher, Cosmos, in 1996. I was a freshman in high school. Mm. Wow. That's crazy. That crazy. It's a pretty simple design, to be honest. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't be that hard to print and play your own copy of something like this if it's something you're really interested in. But mm. Why? Why not? That's what I can't figure out. I mean, I know games like this aren't in vogue right now. People want a bajillion chits and counters and markers and peace vomit all over the place. But I don't know. I just feel like if people actually played this, they would like it. But it's just like it just doesn't get a chance, you know? Yeah. I think it's also because games like this where it takes multiple plays over time to get Mm -hmm. into even starting to understand the strategy is not what a lot of people are looking for. That's a really good point. I could see players playing this one time and be like, this game is dumb. Mm -hmm. But it's not dumb. You're dumb. (laughs) Because you didn't get it. You didn't see it the first time. Play it again. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Should we wrap it up? I reckon. Those are our thoughts on Marrakesh. So I wanted to say one thing about Stefan Dora that came as a surprise this time about, one, how prolific he is and how varied all of his games are. I guess you, Chris, were saying that he's kind of famous that his rules are fairly simple. 
Yes. Is that correct? Yes, that would be correct, yeah. So, I mean, to me, having spent some time thinking about games, I find that absolutely amazing. Or trying to make my own game. Yeah. And how hard that must be. I mean, the guy is absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah. I remember when we, we were playing Marrakesh the other night, Ken... Control. When we were playing Esselsbrucka, he was like, this is the same guy that made Marrakesh? And I was right. like, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're just, yeah, I don't know. How different each game is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And Slough Off, which is a trick taker. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Different genres, different everything. Fantastic. Stefan Doors is genius. No doubt. He might be my favorite designer. Yeah. I think he is. Well, I mean. Just, All things considered. Just looking at his body of work. Yeah. I, I can see that, too. Well, I was going to say I never negatively reviewed any of his games, but Tongo Bongo. But outside of that, <laughs> leave it to me to find the one that's crappy. Right. <laughs> you got that one wrong, too. So <laughs> Maybe I did. Maybe I should try again. I must have been wrong. Or you can find a copy. Only explanation. Yeah, I bet. You want to sell my copy back to me? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Hidden Gems, all about Stefan Dora games. Woohoo! If you're enjoying what we're doing on the podcast... And of course, we hope that you are. Please remember that it's a huge help to us when you guys give us a rating or review on all the various platforms that are out there or when you follow us on social media. So if you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast. Check out the BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or our Discord channel and share a game that you feel is a hidden gem. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason. This is Bill. This is Chris. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems, number 48, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on February 19, 2023. Did you enjoy today's designer spotlight on Steph and Dora? If so, join us again in three weeks as we review a trio of games from an equally prolific, but somewhat lesser known board game designer, Gunter Burkhardt. Hear what we have to say about his designs next time. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yoncheleff. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by Honorary Hidden Gems team member Ghidorah. Our Discord channel is monitored and managed by Honorary Hidden Gems team member SnoozeFest. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, Enjoy your games and enjoy your search.